Welcome everybody to the Plainly Queer podcast. In today's episodes, we're delighted to welcome our guest. A very warm welcome to Silva Nives, a psychosexual therapist, author, supervisor, and speaker. Silva, so, so welcome. Thank you for joining us on the podcast today. Thank you so much for inviting me. It's such a pleasure to be here. We're delighted. Silva, anybody who doesn't know you is not familiar with your work. Would you mind giving a little introduction to who you are, what you do, and how you came into this field? Sure. I've been working as a psychosexual and relationship therapist for now about maybe 12 years. And I first trained as a generic psychotherapist. And then I did a, a postgraduate in psychosexual and relationship therapy and then trauma therapy, and, and then I just kept training because I just love learning. And so, but I've been practicing in my private practice for, for about 12 years now. And I see individuals, couples, people in multiple relationships of all sexual orientations and all minority backgrounds. I've been working in London, central London, that was my practice. But since COVID, I've been working online. I suppose I should start asking questions. So I suppose <laughs> let's Sylvie, do it. Yeah, let's do it. You mentioned, Sylvia, your work as a psychosexual and relationship therapist and gender sexually and relationship diverse affirming therapist. What kind of trends do you see in your work? If you can kind of speak to that in a generic without going too specific, of course, given confidentiality. But yeah, so what trends do you see and what challenges do you think the queer community face? kind of in the current scheme of things or as we progress forward? I think the challenges of the queer community mostly at the moment is oppression. And that's not new, but it's different now, I think. So what comes with that is that in the UK, for example, it's seen as a liberal country. So people are encouraged to come out younger. And when they come out younger, they basically encounter homophobia or biphobia or transphobia younger as well. And, and there is that. And then also there is a lot of push for people saying the queer joy and living my best life and all of that, which is fantastic. You know, I'm not saying this is bad. This is great. This is one good thing, a good model in social media where people can actually see a model of thriving when you are queer or LGBTQ. But at the same time, what that does is that it erases the struggles that people still have now today in 2023. And unfortunately, we know that homophobia, biphobia and transphobia is still biting, is still around, maybe not as overt as it was with Margaret Thatcher's Section 28, but it's still very much out there quite covertly now, but still there. And sometimes not covertly. It's still in 2023, you can't hold hands with your same-sex partner anywhere in the street. You still have to scan the environment for safety before you can hold hand. And holding hand is a small gesture that heterosexual people don't even have to think about it. But if you're queer, you do have to think about it. So just that is really indicating that there is still a lot of homophobia mm. and biphobia and transphobia. So that's one thing. And people are still battling with, with oppression. But because it's covert, it's less maybe tangible. And so people often might come into the room and say, oh, I drink too much, or I'm feeling depressed, or I feel bad about myself. I always feel like I'm a failure. I don't live my best life like other people. And, and when you just build all the, all the layers, really, what they are struggling with is the fact that they've never felt good enough because they're comparing themselves to what we call the majority, which is the heterosexuality and cisgender majority. And so then people feel bad about themselves. 
And and one of the reasons for this is because we everybody still now, even in 2023, we are raised to be heterosexual. We are raised to be monogamous. Or the narrative out there, even fed to our children with cartoons and stuff, is one of heterosexuality and, and, and monogamy. So and cis and being cisgender, so it's it's when when people start to realize that they are not like that or they're different, it starts to create some internal discomfort, and then we we take on what we call internalized homophobia. Sometimes it can be internalized biphobia or internalized transphobia, which means that we start to develop those kind of thinking that's negative around sexual orientation and gender diversity. And that becomes part of the normal for queer people from very early age. And so that means that then it's almost undetected. They can't say, I feel bad because society tells me that I'm wrong or I'm not like the others or I don't fit in the norms. They will just say, I'm bad because I'm failing. So of course Mm. they blame themselves. It's all unconscious nearly. It's like we kind of, it's just innate. It's put into us. It's, it's, it's literally put into us. And just when you were speaking there to Queer Joy, we did a, an episode recently and we talked, we were discussing Queer Joy and I just couldn't get into it. I couldn't get into the space. I was feeling a bit down on myself and I didn't feel authentic discussing Queer Joy. And we came up with this thing that Cloda put a very good word on it. She said, it sounds like you're in a funk. And I was like, I am. I'm I'm in a queer funk. I can't feel queer joy because I am in a queer funk at the moment. And I'm just at a low point. So yes, there's queer joy and like that everyone's kind of spreading it all over social media and stuff. But there's the other side of it that there's a very harsh lived experience as well within the community that also needs to be recognized and spoken to. That's right. Absolutely. And one thing that we don't often talk about is the impact that homophobia and biphobia and transphobia has on us, even if it doesn't happen in our doorstep, because they are our communities and because we identify with queer people. If we see in the media that queer people are being hunted and killed in other countries that have anti-gay laws, it actually affects us. It's what we call vicarious trauma. So when I hear a story about those countries that have anti-gay laws, and there are 67 at the moment in the last count in the world who have anti-gay laws, and, and you hear those stories, it, it really do affect us. And again, it affects us in a way that we don't always necessarily pick up consciously, but it goes straight into our heart and it goes to that wound. So, and there are examples everywhere, if you really think about it. Just last year, when Qatar played, was at the, on the world stage, yes. For, for the World Cup and in, in the UK here, the government at, at the time was telling us that we should make compromise and we should just allow it to happen and brush it under, under the carpet. That's one way of dismissing us, really. And those are, again, like small little things, but actually it means a lot. But also we can see, for example, in the USA, which is another country that's supposed to be liberal, apparently. And we, when we hear that there is don't say gay in some states and then other states, would, they, they, ban, they want to ban drag queens and, and all of that stuff actually affect us. Even though it's far away, we identify with the hurt, we identify with the oppression and it's, mm-hmm. part, of, it's part of the wound. In Ireland, just recently, actually last week or a week and a half ago, it was last week, I think. Um, it was actually the, the day of international kind of right. condemnation of transphobia, biphobia and homophobia. 
I'm sorry, Claudia, continue. Yeah. yeah, thanks for saying that because that actually is a really important point. On that day, there was a 14-year-old, a young person was attacked because of their queerness, because they were gay and brutally attacked. And it was filmed and uh, it was broadcast and there was outrage and... But you kind of go, how are we still here? How is this still happening? And I remember when we got marriage equality, when the, when we voted for marriage equality, one of the first nations to ever vote for it, it wasn't legislated, it was we changed our constitution. I remember that day when the vote was so high, I think it was like 70% of, our, of, of Ireland voted in favour of it. And I remember thinking, my country is behind me. So you remember, you mentioned there the holding of the hand. I was like, I know if I decide to do that, that if somebody decides to be homophobic towards me or attack me or anything, say anything towards me, the majority of people around me will have my back. That has changed for me in the last number of years. That has confidence in my community, in, in the world around me has been eroded. And I don't know do you, can you speak to what you think is contributing to this upward trend in, in just the like blatant attacks? It's more outward. It's more, it's, it's not as covert, as you said. It's very overt in places. Yes, and you're right. I mean, we've got the law, which is great, okay, and the law protects us. But actually how the people live in the streets is really different. And the fact that we have our rights now, it's even some people who are homophobic or biphobic or transphobic, they even use that to say, well, you've got all your rights now, so can you just shut up about it and stop having pride? And why can't we have straight pride? You know, all this stuff that you hear about it. And that's because they think that being having equal rights, that we should be grateful to have equal rights and that, that we have them, yeah. we, should, we should just be quiet. But the problem is that the reality is that in the streets, it's not equal rights. And if, even though it's it's illegal now to have hate crime against LGBTQ people, if it happens, people turn a blind eye most of the time. They will not, even if they disagree with the hate crime that they're noticing, they're not going to come and rescue you. So mm. it's we, we feel pretty kind of alone a lot of the yes. time. And if there is now because of uh, things that's happened like COVID and the cost of life crisis and all of this stuff, everybody's so angry. And, and everybody has something to, to be angry about. And so when, when it comes to, oh, you got attacked because you chose to hold your partner's hand, oh, boo-hoo, whatever. And that goes like on the pile of forms that people have to fill in that never gets to be seen properly, really. So again, it's so easy to dismiss those things. And they, they, people still believe that it is a choice. Well, it's, it's, up to, it's you, isn't it? You chose to hold the hand and now you got attacked. Well, there you go. It's like telling women that they got raped because they had a small skirt and they got drunk. Yeah. So again, it's, it's another victim way blaming. of, yes, it's another, it's victim blaming. It's another way of dismissing our struggles. It's another way of saying, why can't you just have a party at home and don't, don't show your face in the street because you're, that's up to you. That's up to you to get attacked if you're in the street. So all of that's, all of that things is, is really happening. It's happening on a daily basis. And if you're not queer or identifying in, in, a, in a way, any way with LGBTQ, you literally don't see it. You, mm. you don't notice it. You don't see it because that's the privilege of heterosexuality. So yeah. it doesn't get seen. And yet people yeah. get attacked in the streets almost every weekend. Can I follow up, Sylvia, if you don't mind? Because even as you're talking, and I've discussed this recently, I get angry. I, I get very angry about all this happening and i 
I'm thinking like, is this an okay emotion feeling? Should I just, should I not be angry about this? Should I kind of, how am I supposed to feel about all this injustice? Because I've been encouraged to be my true self, but to a point. And if I go beyond that point, the system, those oppressive, oppressive systems are starting to fight back now, physically even, and attacking us. So I'm kind of like, I'm getting angry. So this kind of like, yeah, is that a healthy emotion? What's what's a good, healthy emotional way to deal with this, in your opinion? Embrace your anger, is what I say. Yeah. <laughs> Just be angry. Yeah. Yes, please, more of yes. it. And sometimes, actually, anger is, is really, really good because anger has a lot of energy as an emotion. And if we can recycle anger into activism and into doing things like what we're doing right now, we're speaking maybe from a point of view of anger, but it's actually speaking and doing doing a podcast so that it gives information to people. And the people that listen to the to this podcast who identify as queer, they think, oh, wow, okay, there are other people who feel like me and think like me and I'm not alone. So that's a really, really good way to recycle anger. Doing podcasts, going in the streets with, with other people so we can be doing activism and, and keep speaking up and speaking up and speaking up. Mm. Well said. Yeah, thank you so much for that. I'm going to try and be focused here and say we'll move on to the next question because otherwise I will just discuss this all the time and just basically process my anger and it becomes a therapy. <laughs> <question>. so, <laughs> it happens quite a lot in our in our podcast, yeah, the processing podcast. of each other's whatever's going on that week. Yeah, <laughs> I think Clodagh might have uh, another question. Sort of actually on that. My question is, so the need for a specialized therapist training in this field is, is very much, there's no argument for that. However, does it divide us in society so there are queer therapists for queer people rather than us adding it into the collective and having this just be the norm, inverted commas here? Queer relationships are being are then on the fringe. They're not the norm when it's a divided subsect within therapy. I was wondering, what's, what are your thoughts on it? I fully agree the need for it, but it's almost like it's a separate entity from, from mainstream psychotherapy. Yes, at the moment it is. And it's considered a specialization because you have to actually look for the training specifically and then invest your time and energy into it. And the reason why we have to do it at the moment is because it is not included in all the core trainings in psychotherapy. And one of my fights for the profession is to integrate GSRD knowledge in all psychotherapy training because I think it needs to be integrated in all the trainings. You know, just like people in all trainings, you have modules on working with depression, anxiety, eating issues. It should be also with GSRD and not just the footnote at the end of a course or not just the, yeah. the one weekend where you put all the, all the non-heterosexual in together and some people... Um, that experience this kind of training, they often call it the freak show weekend, right? When you oh, just put yeah. all the other people that are not fitting the norm. And I don't, think, I don't think this is how it should be. I think it should be that all the diversities in gender, sex, sexuality, and relationship diversity should be in, integrated and, and weaved in all the trainings and, and be in case studies when you look at all sorts of different issues. Because when you work with depression with a white heterosexual person, it's different from when you treat depression with a black heterosexual person. And it's different from when you treat depression with somebody who identifies as uh, in the LGBTQ spectrum and depression. Those are different things because depression comes from different places and different op oppression. 
So, so there you go. At the moment, we don't have that. It's very hard to find a textbook that was written before 2022, where there are case studies that show the diversity of people just, just as a fact, not just as a special population. Special. Yeah. You know, it's and, the and ordering, now, now it's, the continuation. Yeah, the, of ordering the ordering is continuing and it's changing a little bit now, but it's changing very, very slow and it's changing too slow because mm. at the moment, still in 2023, there are plenty of people who say who are not heterosexual, white and cisgender and monogamous and vanilla. <laughs> if you're not that, basically, they're saying that the therapy space weren't safe. Or it was yeah. judgmental, or they didn't quite understand, or the the therapy was used to educate the therapist rather than rather than helping the client. Mm. So I don't think it's good enough for a profession in 2023. And this is one of the motivation. This is my anger, my <laughs> frustration, perhaps, by hearing client after client after client telling me that their previous therapy was not so great. That gives that's what gives me the motivation to recycle all of that energy of frustration into writing books. Uh, is it okay if I speak to that, Claudia, for a moment? Sorry. Yes, go first. And this is this is sparking so much, Silva. So excuse us. We're both trying to probably go to try and get in on stuff. But I suppose we we are both based in Ireland. We both trained as psychotherapists in Ireland. And I recently just did my thesis on kind of the queer student therapist and their experience and the resistance felt to assimilating, basically having to assimilate into this heteronormative narrative. And I suppose for myself, a lot of my research came from the UK. It came from yourself, Dominic Davis, Pink Therapy, the BACP and their guidelines. I know you've kind of worked collaboratively with them, but there's nothing like that here in Ireland. There's very little. It's only starting off where I suppose in the UK, it would be kind of, it has built up to something. But in Ireland, there's, I think they're just laying the foundations. Nothing has started to build yet. But in my core training, I think, it was an hour, maybe two, of GSRD kind of training or awareness. I was the only queer person in the space. And I just remember there was a heterosexual, middle-aged, cisgendered male having another discussion with another heterosexual, cisgendered white male, one a lecturer, one a student, about Grindr. And, oh, what's Grindr? It's like, oh, that's what the gays used to have sex. And just the promiscuity and just putting that out there and I literally we were online at the time because of COVID and I picked up something that was on my desk and I threw it against the wall because the lecturer knew I was gay that I was queer and it was just it was an awful experience it was awful and I I I think training is something you go through and then you get to be the therapist you want to be or that you need to be to be your authentic self. And I think I was very lucky to have a very affirming space to do my clinical work, to be with clients from the queer community and to know that I was doing the right thing. I was in the right, I was on the right path because I found such a sense of purpose in this work. And like that, mm. this is where I'm focusing that anger in a more positive way, like through sublimation. And so, yeah, sorry, I just wanted to speak to that. It's very true. And hopefully yes. it will change. Yes, thank goodness. There are people who are queer identified who practice therapy to, uh, to offer a safe space for queer people. 
And but as you were saying, obviously at the moment it feels like it's a specialization and it's dividing different modalities in psychotherapy. I think that hopefully at some point it will be integrated in the knowledge for everyone so that all therapy spaces can be safe. So what we want to do really is is uniting all the the knowledge into one and not just having to always having to translate the case studies from heterosexuality into, oh, what would it be like for if you had a queer person instead, you know, and you have to do all the work yourself without a proper space in clinical training to discuss those things, you know, and, and, and still now though, I mean, even in the UK, thank you for recognizing the UK is doing quite a bit of work, but even now in the UK, there are still some, some theories that prevail that are not fitting for the queer population. Things like, oh yes, maybe you're into polyamory because you've got an avoidant attachment style and you're avoiding monogamy. <laughs> you know, uh, yeah. people, <laughs> people still think that if you're into kink, that's because you had childhood trauma and all that kind of things. And so, it's so reductive, isn't it? Yes, yeah. really. So reductive, yeah. You know, one of the reasons why we wanted to speak to you and get you on the podcast is because you edited and I think authored in one of the chapters, but you, one of the books was Relationally Queer and the other book was Erotically Queer. And That's correct. I, fabulous books. Now, we did divide and conquer, so because as much and all as I'd love to be able to read too, but I'm not that fast. I'm not that fast <laughs> to be able to do it. But in speaking together and in talking about them, would you see those books, would you like to see those books as being part of the curriculum? Definitely. Yeah. Is that the aim in when you were writing? Yes. Yes. Yeah. Absolutely. The the, the aim of those books is not to really to, for for queer therapists to read because they kind of already know that stuff (laughs) that we're writing in those books. Although there's always something new to learn. I learned a lot co-editing those books, actually, you know, so there's always more to learn. But it's mostly for those books to be everywhere in all the therapy schools because they're much needed is those yeah. two books there's, there's a f- quite a few in that that's published recently that are really quite would be very good for all psychotherapists to read queering psychotherapy is another one one of our colleagues edited as well with lots of chapters from lots of really great clinicians as well and so these books need need to be not just the the book to read at the end of the list of other books the the books for the special population it should be integrated in, mm. in as core reading yeah i just if it's okay if i follow on with a question from the erotically queer which was i think it speaks to something we've kind of been discussing and building up to but the, one of the chapters by simon alexander lynn on shame and you speak to the fact i'm queer and i'm reading this and i'm i'm a clinician i practice but even i'm learning golden nuggets from it, it it's really really good work so i really appreciate it it's a great chapter on the Mm. the one on shame is a great great chapter and i actually really believe that shame is everywhere and especially with queer people it's just not possible to work with a queer person without working with shame i don't i don't think Mm. and 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 shame is just like we were saying earlier about living in the oppression and it's a normal for us and so it's not always detected living with shame is also a normal for us and so it's undetectable a lot of the time and yet it really pulls the strings of our mental health and so being able to recognizing to talk about it to to make it as part of the everyday conversation with queer people is so healing therapeutically Mm. because if it still stays in the dark if shame stays in the dark it just kind of becomes bigger and bigger and bigger because it loves the darkness, it loves being in lurking in in the secrets part of ourselves that we don't look at the shadow, 
And then what happens is on the surface is gay men just passing out of the dance floor and everybody wonders why. Well, actually, maybe that's because of shame that's just become out of control. I just, I love in the chapter how it was framed that like shame is a symptom of relational trauma. And that was a really good way for me to frame it. And I think even as a lay person who's not in this realm or field would understand that and they would be able to trace back to that. That yes, it's a product of relational trauma. And a couple of things for me, I know you said the the gay man passing out on the dance for whatever reason, but a couple of things that came up to me and resonated with myself was the idea of shame contributing to like being a sexual outlaw and that whole violating prohibition. And I suppose from from a kink standpoint for myself, that totally makes sense. You know, that kind of way it's like you look at, I'm doing this with rabbit ears, promiscuity and the negative connotations of that. But yeah, just being that sexual outlaw. I remember being a sexual outlaw in my 20s, my 30s (laughs) and into my 40s. But we needed something. We needed to kind of do something with this. And that was the something. Mm-hmm. Mm. That's right. Yeah, for sure. If I can ask on on the relation in queer, one of, one of the topics I love talking about is the intersection of religion and queerness. And in the book, you talk about religion and queer identities. Can the beliefs shape a person's journey with their queer identity? What is the significance of religion in a queer person's life? Well, so yes, it's a, it's a great chapter as well. This is yeah. Saqib's chapter. And actually reading, editing that chapter, I've learned a lot about the intersectionality between queer and religion. And, and when I first read the chapter from Saqib, I was quite challenged as well because I have some very different, some very specific ideas about religion. And for me, religion is, I don't connect with religion at all. So it's, I, I understand faith. For me, faith is different from religion. I really understand yes. faith. But religion, that is basically a set of man-made rules that is imposed on other people. And if they don't, the, they don't follow the rules, then some punishment happens. I don't connect to that at all. Yeah. And it obviously we know with the history, of the queer history, that religion has been a major part, all religions have been a major part in oppressing uh, LGBTQ people. So I've got some particular feelings about religion. And when I read Sekib's book, I was like, oh, wow, there's actually some positive stuff about it that I just didn't didn't really consider. And so I think that's a really great chapter. And, and what I've learned is that sometimes with religion, it is a really a difficult place because you have to either, people sometimes feel they have, have to choose either between their identity, queer identity, or the religion, and they can't have both together because it means that if they choose the queer identity, then they will get ostracized by their religious communities and their family, and they're losing everything, basically. And if it's the opposite, they may repress their sexuality and therefore cause significant mental health to themselves. Yeah. And and both are just really not great ideas. And some people have to be courageous to choose one or the other in a very careful way. But what this chapter also has taught me and challenged me with is that it is possible in some instances to to marry the two successfully. It's just that it takes a lot of reinterpreting different things and maybe also meeting other people that have the same intersection as you have so that you're not all alone with with it. Yeah, the importance of community. And and I mean, you, you talk about that that divide, choosing one or the other. That's that's a a split in the soul. 
Yeah. Anybody who has a spirituality or connects to a religion, having to choose one or the other, it, it really goes central to who they are, their their sense yeah. of themselves in the world. And on both on both cases, your religion provides you with such a grounding. Yeah. And who you are in your sexuality is another grounding in yourself and in the world. And it can cause such a divide. It can cause such harm. But you're right. When you are able to challenge that narrative, when you're able to meet others in community, in spirituality, in religion, that can find the joy and find the connection, the true connection. It is powerful and I think really healing. Definitely, absolutely. And there are some various interpretation to religious texts. And so sometimes it's also finding the, the queer-friendly interpretation. And then people can sometimes decide that they're going to take on that interpretation and leaving behind what they've learned in their childhood or even what their parents believe and, and find a way to, to live with both. It, it kind of goes to life as well. We're handed so much as 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 kids, as as babies, and here's your identity. Here's the team you follow. Here's the culture you follow in terms of where you grow up. Uh, here's like in in Ireland we have GAA. So like here's like you're just handed so much that as the adult, as you're coming into your teens and adulthood, you get to kind of go, okay, well actually I don't subscribe to that. I never have, but I've just gone along with it because. I'm supposed to. So mm -hmm. if you can really, as the adult, kind of go, okay, what did I just swallow whole and what can I actually get rid of now that does not suit me? What does appeal to me? Rewrite that script because there are so many scripts out there and there is one for everybody. That's right. Absolutely. There is definitely a story and a script that fits with everybody. You're absolutely right. And religion, the impact of religion, we in that in Sakib's chapter is very much people who identify very strongly with the religion. But actually, if we look at it, there are so many things that we believe about sexuality or relationship that is that traces back to early Christianity or to some early religious thinking that now is so embedded in our society, we don't even remember that it's from religious thinking sometimes. But, but it was never really thinking about yeah well exactly you know it's just it was been never passed written. on it was, yeah it was male interpretation that suited a timeline or a narrative I've, i already went into this on another podcast where i'm like back in the roman days it, it suited emperors for monogamy to be the the, the go-to because then they want women to bear as many children so they can raise armies and that's how this all came about when in actual fact you know the, the <laughs> In the commas, the alternative lifestyles were already there back in the day. It was always there and even legislated against back then, because if it was never, if it never existed, why was it legislated against back in, in that time? So anyway, it was it was a male interpretation of religious texts that said this was no longer acceptable, but it's not actually written in the books. It was never even in unlike in a Christian, I can only speak to a Christian side of things, but Jesus never spoke to it. And it's literally they took that as because he didn't speak to it, you should be ashamed of it. He didn't right. speak to so much. So, like, if you want to go down that route, we'll go down that route. But, like, anyway, that's yeah. another tangent. I would exactly. go on all day. Yeah, but it's really important to talk about these things because we don't often, we don't talk about it too, enough, right? The, mm. Those ideas that so many people have in a, in my consulting room, I hear that all the time, like the, the, the gold standard of monogamy or mm. the, I should not be, I should not be fantasizing about somebody else because I'm with a partner. All these things really come from some religious thinking that was long, long ago. 
and been passed down as truth. Even things like blue is for boy, pink is for girl. This is just, that was a a fashion marketing Mm. strategy to start with. Nothing, nothing with anything real, really. So I say this all the time. Everything is a social construct and everything (laughs) can be dismantled and we can start again. It's that easy, folks. Going for the utopia. Yeah, I what what's coming up for me is that's being discussed is the importance to distinguish between faith and religion, and I think especially for the queer community, utilizing spirituality, linking into spirituality, and kind of mindfulness for positive mental health effects. I think it's good to keep the word faith in mind because you do need a sense of purpose. You do need something in life. So I think that's why some people don't want to lean into spirituality. They associate it with religion. But I think it's very important to kind of now frame it as faith. And yes, we do need faith. As a community, we need faith in each other and take what you need from that. And let's kind of, let's form our own religion. No, of course not. <laughs> but, uh, no, yeah, I, I think that's important. Though, it, kind of yeah, it it's so important because sometimes it really makes a difference between somebody who is going to continue with struggling until things get better to somebody who decides to end their lives when somebody feels like all alone and they have no more hope that things will get better then that's when people want to end their lives and and we know that in the lgbtq community and especially amongst the young ones suicide is is, is a high rate of suicide and that's just so awful and it's heartbreaking but it might be because as a community we're not so good at interacting with each other, speaking to each other, and having that community faith of, hey, we're here, we are, we, we all identify as queer, we might be different, and we have different ideas, but we all identify as queer, let's just get together and be together. I think yeah. that's so hard, though, because I, I hear what you're saying, and I see it myself within the community. There's all these resources, and people try and kind of maybe set up support groups, but people are always afraid to link in with them, or people are always afraid to kind of because we've been in ourselves for so long, we've been with just ourselves for so long, that it's actually really difficult to reach out and engage with these supports, especially with other queer people, because you're so afraid of it. You're so fearful for being yourself. Because you of think the that's system. the shame. Yeah, of course. Yeah. The yeah. shame of going, if, if I feel this badly, if I reach out and then somebody mirrors my badness inverted commas back to me i will crumble under it and 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 they're crumbling anyway so it's it's so sad it's so so isolated it is very sad and isolated and if we go back to shame as well another another way that the queer community is mitigating shame is by perfectionism and so often Mm -hmm. if you are a young queer person who's coming out and they want to go to the gay scene what they might see is perfection everywhere which actually increases isolation because it it feels like oh okay i'm going to get rejected i'm going to get criticized because i don't i don't look like the others i don't have the right body i don't i don't wear the right clothes i don't listen to the right music and so can feel more and more isolated and it feels like this is not for me either and then people feel like they don't have a space for themselves and mm-hmm. i think part of, as part of that to recognize that this this is there is also a problem in our community about that that it's too rejecting and too harsh and we hear those 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 experiences all the time from people on grinder for example who have been just insulted for no reason Mm. And and but that's not because people are bad in our communities, because we are traumatized and because we're full of shame and somehow we need to mitigate it in, in the best way that we can. 
and and if we were going to speak about uh, like we are now speaking like now, just people looking different, not just not, not just the pinup in the in the cover of the magazine of attitude, but actually mm-hmm. normal people talking about how we can open our arms to our queer friends and peers and to say, hey, there are some pockets of queer spaces that are really welcoming and anyone's welcome and we won't judge and we won't criticize because what we want is love. And I think that maybe, maybe over time, there might be more willingness to take the risk and and come to us. Beautifully Mm. said, beautifully said. I think that's kind of where Paul and I have come from in terms of what we were trying to create. Like we, we got together in terms of a conversation about we in a conversation about putting together a queer group in, in, in some therapeutic way, it changed into, into the podcast, but we were talking about how we felt we were bad gays, that we didn't know enough about the scene. We weren't in the scene. We weren't the typical, I wasn't the typical lesbian. He wasn't the typical gay man. You know, all of these, again, the narratives that we had swallowed and kept us on the outside. And we were like, okay, well, let's just be plainly queer then. Let's just be ourselves and have the conversations and learn more about the community and invite others to have the conversations. And that's literally how we started this podcast so we started our conversations is because we are so plainly queer there's nothing special about us we're you basic know, we're amazing we're, fa- we're fabulous but yeah we're basic <laughs> but, but you know happy to be basic and i always say oh, with totally this, yeah i always say with this podcast we're like zero percent production value but a hundred percent heart and authenticity so that's the way we'll keep it forward but uh, if it's okay to shift, Silva, to ask a question based, I suppose, again, on erotically queer, the, the book, just in relation to sex. So I suppose sex is a big part of the queer community. So I suppose the question would be for me, what is good sex and what constitutes sexual success, which has been brought up in kind of erotically queer? Well, it's a big question, but the actual brief answer to that is good sex is basically when you feel pleasure and when you feel good about it. <laughs> That's it. <laughs> and so it's not about it's not about how you look. It's not about how your partner looks. It's not about positions. It's not about the frequency. It's just feeling good, sharing your body with one person or several people and, and embracing that pleasure, shame-free and guilt-free. I think, yeah, I suppose that sounds great. But in reality, then you've kind of, I think because of shame and because of kind of the other negative kind of mental health impacts, I think it does impact sex for the queer community in relation to sexual desires, kind of arousals, behaviors and fantasies. And I think it's going into that whole thing of the sexual outlaw and Mm -hmm. to be, oh, I I suppose, what am I speaking to here? I, I don't want to... I don't want to demonize anything or I don't want to kind of, but there are practices where we, you can go in impulsively or compulsively and you're doing these not for the pleasure or the emotional feel-good feelings. You're doing them because it's speaking to something else that's in you that's not being fulfilled as a result of this. You're not get, Do you get where I'm coming from with that? I'm kind of yeah, like, yeah, of course. 
And as that's, that's part of good sex is, is to be aware of what is going on for you and what is the association that you're making when you're trying to, when you decide, when you select your partners and you decide who to have sex with and you decide what you're going to be doing and those conversations about consent. And, and if you, especially if you practice kink and BDSM, you have to have those conversations that you have to know what you're doing. And that means that you have to take the time and to be curious about your life. When, when people have sexual problems or compulsive sexual behaviors, it's often because they are in the dark. They have not enough awareness of what's going on for them. And one thing that I always say to people, there's just two different magic phenomenon that happens with um, sexual behaviors that are unwanted. One is that the more awareness there is, the less compulsivity there is. And the other one is the less shame there is, the less compulsivity there is. So there's a there's a, a clear link between awareness and shame and how you're going to have sex, your sexual behaviors. So in some ways, if you if you are full of shame for different reasons, not just sexually, but if you think that you're you're bad, that you're wrong, that something's broken with you and you keep believing that, that's going to affect all the areas of your life. But it's also it's going to affect the sex life. And for queer people, sex, the sex life is very important because that's the place where they feel alive, they feel affirmed, and, and, and also it's a big part of the culture, of the queer culture. And so if you then have bad sex or unsatisfying sex or things that's gone wrong, then that increases the shame straight away if you have not enough awareness of what is actually going on. And to, and to learn to be kind to ourselves as well. We've never learned as a community, community to be kind to ourselves because there's not been a lot of model with that. Yes. You know, for, for so long, for so long the, in the media, the, the queer person was the, uh, the camp one or the funny one or the one or the promiscuous one, very kind of like typecasted. It's only just now, very recently, where there are some characters that are just everyday characters who happen to be gay Oh, how wonderful, you know, but that's just only recent. In our psyche, there's not a lot of that. There's not a lot of you can be gay and and in a monogamous relationship or you can be gay and uh, being in an open relationship and that's totally fine or be gay, kinky and happy or any of those stuff. So, So we criticize ourselves. We beat ourselves up for things that are actually quite normative for a lot of people. And, and that's because of that's because of the shame and lack of awareness. I think just as you're talking there, it's I want to speak to if it's okay, a personal kind of situation that I had a relationship in which like I was taking like a passive role. And I was like, well, I'm not, I, I don't want to take a passive role. I feel like we're equals. Are we not equals? And the dynamic got really toxic. And my thinking around it, I was kind of like, what am I, why am I doing this to myself? So it ended pretty abruptly. But it's all like that. It's about that. Sh- I think I had an awareness that, okay, I, I deserve better than this. Like if I have certain needs in the relationship and I have desires and they're based on the fact I love the person, I'm sexually attracted to the person and I'd like to engage with them just as they engage with me. But it, it's the, there's all those, sh- that, that was shame. That was everything. And that was awareness coming into it. So that's totally what you're saying is totally on the mark. And I think it's important for gay men, especially to hear that in this space. So thank you for speaking to it. Yes, that's right. And there's, there's, we all have the right, whatever we decide to have in our sex life at the beginning of a, of a relationship, we develop, we change, and we have the right to, to change our mind or to want to explore different things as we go on. And it needs to be a space for that in relationships that are good relationships, where the honesty and mutual pleasure has to be ongoing conversations, and that will change over time. 
So, but also when people just think, well, I'm top and that, that's because it's, it's associated with masculinity. That is also part of society that tells mm. us that top means masculine. But in fact, there's lots and lots and lots of very, very masculine men who are bottom and, and love it. And, and it's, it goes into this gender binary kind of, uh, and this masculinity narrative that we have as well. That's just really, really, really so unhelpful. Yeah. Oh, it goes so to yeah. the ability to, sorry, I just, I just think it, it, it's the importance of having, like having these conversations, but also giving the language to, to people to speak to it going, as you say, it, it's ongoing, it's developing my changes and needs, my wants, my desires are, okay, I actually fancy trying or doing or, and having that availability within the relationship, having that capacity rather than going, I'm this person going into this relationship, this connection, this whatever it may be, and being rigidly defined by it. Everybody gets to be exactly who they are in any given moment. As long as you're not harming anybody, you go for it. And there's such a a rejection of that it's it's like a heteronormative thing you're going there's your role please stay in the box if you go outside the box we're not going to know where to put you and we're not really going to engage with you so we t- like yeah the importance of language in that sorry yes, that's right. yeah there. absolutely and the way we, with with my clients or even when i teach about sexology I, I really enjoy using the analogy of food because it's because then people get it. The the topic of sex can be quite scary, but often if I said to to people, well, if you if you meet your partner and their favorite dessert is lemon tart, are you going to be wanting them to enjoy lemon tart for the rest of their lives? And what if then suddenly it becomes a carrot cake? Are you going to be offended? And then suddenly people start to get it. It's like, oh, all right, yeah. So for someone, when I think of food or dessert, we can we can like different food. We can maybe yeah. my favorite food is your is your most hated one, and yet we don't feel offended by that. And we can talk about our differences. Why can't we do the same with our erotic mind and our fantasies yes. and and our sexual turn-ons? And so you start conversation like this, and then suddenly it makes better sense for people. And the, and then the the sexual conversation doesn't become so scary. And people can start to understand about how they can navigate and explore their the sexual life for better sex. Can I ask one follow-up question? And then I'm going to shut up because I'd be talking too much and close it in. The floor is yours for the rest of us. But I suppose just speaking to your, your book, Compulsive Sexual Behaviours, and talking about sex, is there a thing as too much sex? Does like We talk about sex addiction and porn addiction. Are they a thing? Do they exist? Like, is there too much? Is there, when does it become too much? Yes. So it's another area that I'm passionate about because I see so much malpractice in this area. So, and, and, and the reason for it is because the literature on sex addiction and porn addiction is heavily embedded in heteronormativity, mononormativity as well. And so it means that people are, the interventions are really can be harmful for queer people. And that's why I've decided to write that particular book is because I've been, I kept hearing over and over and over again of people being traumatized with places like 12-step program for Sex Addicts Anonymous or Sex and Love Addicts Anonymous or even some sex addiction therapy. And so, and I thought that our clients deserve better. And, and I don't think, first of all, there is sex addiction and porn addiction have not been endorsed by any scientific communities, DSM-5 refuted completely, and the ICD-11 came up with compulsive sexual behavior disorder, and they clearly state it's not an addiction because there's a lack of evidence to prove it. It's an impulse control disorder. 
yet a lot of sex addiction therapists who make most of their money on the sex addiction treatment will say, oh, well, compulsive sexual behavior is the same as sex addiction. So we're just going to carry on doing what we do. And it's actually quite disgenuine, in my opinion. But that's another, it's not a, another fight I'm, I'm fighting with our profession to try to open people's mind a little bit. It's just so important that people realize that there is more to the treatment than stopping behaviors. And in fact, stopping behaviors is often not really at all recommended. And there is not, there is not any measurement that tells you what is more sex, too much sex, or not too much sex, too much porn, or not not too much porn. All of that is so subjective, and it's mm-hmm. so different from one person to another. We actually have to pay attention to the whole person, to look at all of their association, their meaning, their sense of aliveness. And actually, often what you realize is that people have sexual behaviors even multiple times outside of their primary relationship or in secret from their primary relationship because they're searching for other stuff that is actually really important to validate. And and again, it's when it's brought up to the awareness of people, rather than shaming them for doing those behavior and and telling them they're addicts, which I think is very shaming and quite disrespectful for people who struggle with real addictions. I think that we need to help them with understanding the erotic mind, with with normalizing the turn-ons, and then with awareness, they will have a, a better erotic map to make better decisions with their sexual behaviors. But unfortunately, with a sex addiction treatment, there's hardly any sexology that's, that's included in the treatment. It's all, most of it is addiction theories they're using. And, and I just think it can be really problematic to apply the addiction theories to compulsive sexual behaviors or to sexual behaviors in itself. Mm-hmm. And I've seen, I've seen so many things under the sun that's been really, really disturbing from, from sex addiction treatments like pathologizing kink, pathologizing polyamory, pathologizing a lot of queer sex that, that, that is pathologized. And, uh, and that's, just, that's just not okay for me. So there you go. I speak about it. And some people love that I speak about it and other people <laughs> hate it. <laughs> I, I, well, I personally love hearing you kind of frame it and speak it. Consider my mind open and hopefully the minds yeah. of the people listening open. I say it's just my mother that listens to it, Silva. So consider her mind open. <laughs> we'll start spreading the word on that because it makes yeah. perfect sense. It makes, it just, yeah. it makes sense to think of it like that so and it's a healthier way to think of it you know it's like that it's normalizing it's understanding it's awareness and then through that awareness can come positive change so totally understand that and appreciate that thank you the old adage of with awareness comes choice what's happening if you understand yourself in it you have a choice of how you want to proceed in a healthy way that's for you instead of this shame that's put on you with society of going no this is not right this is the way it should be and all of these feckin' rules anyway uh, you know you're quite you're you're at the forefront it seems at a at a lot in terms of education in terms of queer education in terms of relationship dynamics not just for the queer community polyamory is not just for the queer community this heteronormative monogamous sort of idea uh, that we are just entrenched in doesn't suit a lot of people this is no. not, and, and polyamory is not new multiple partners is not a new yeah. concept it's been there no, since well, the dawn of time yes that's right heteronormativity doesn't suit a lot of heterosexual people yes <laughs> yeah, it really doesn't well. Yeah. And, and even to broach the conversation of going, OK, well, if this isn't right for you, what would be right? And it's like, 
but it has to be right. It's the only the only concept they can hold is that us together in a monogamous relationship, there is no room for a discussion of going, well, does it feel like you'd like other partners? Does it feel like there are needs being met? As soon as that's been said, people just go, what do you mean I'm not meeting their needs? And the hurt and the pain. And it's like this such a reductive understanding of what it means to be in a relationship. And the offering of of other types of relationship that it has, that, that are available, I mean, it offers so much freedom. But anyway, my my question but, actually but there, is there, going there's, to be... there's also really sorry to interrupt. Yeah. There's also some really interesting stats that are coming up now. That it seems like the the population that reports the best sex satisfaction are lesbians, and then Yay. it's yeah. <laughs> go yes. you, Clodagh. Go you. That's right. <laughs> <laughs> and then it's gay men, and at the bottom of sexual satisfaction is heterosexual people. Doesn't surprise and, me, and that is that is because of heteronormativity, and that's because of poor sex education, and that's because heterosexual people think that it's just one one rigid way of having sex, and of mm. course, what what that does is is terrible dissatisfaction. Yes, sorry, go on, Paul. No, I was just saying the the rigid the word rigid. There's only one rigid way to have sex, and then it just brought into mind about <laughs> a, a kind of erect penis, and I was kind of like <laughs> kind of apt. We're sorry. back at school again. We're back. <laughs> My brain works. Sorry, sorry, go on, <laughs> I love it. Um, kind of leading on from kind of as I say, you're at the forefront of 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 you know education, really. And one of the things that has been happening in the world is the the removal of books from libraries, the removal of, we mentioned it earlier, don't say gay, the removal of just the expressions. Do you fear with your books, with what you've written on, that your books will become part of that narrative now, that you will be removed from is it going to be from college libraries? Are we going to get that far? Or is it going to be just in, in every day, go down the street, there's your library? Do you worry about that? Is that part of your experience or where does that come in? I worry about a lot of what's going on in the world, the state of the world. Yes, I worry about it. And I think it's not really going in the right direction for many countries. So, but at the same time, I think that books now can be accessed in many different ways and and, mm. and a lot of people can share them with each other in contraband if we look at if if, uh, if a country becomes like Gilead basically mm-hmm. uh, I think somehow they will be circulated in the black market or whatever and then th- those become the uh, the books to hold on to really and yeah. and I think there's many books not, not just mine but many many books that are really worth worth keeping in libraries and if they get to be banned in some ways it's an indication of the state of a country so mm-hmm. yeah you know, and it also we probably have, we have to keep going. popularity. We have, yeah, we have to keep going and we have to write more books. There's just not enough, not enough books that, that challenges the normal narrative that we need to change. Well said, well said. Uh, apart from the books that you've written and edited, are there books that you would recommend for the layperson, the plainly queer person or an ally listening today that, okay, there's a lot of things we talked about today and touched on today. I'd like to learn more. Yeah, I would recommend any books from Meg John Barker. They are an amazing yes. author that wrote many, many books and they will appeal to everybody else. They often co-author with another fantastic clinician called Alex Ian Taffy, 
who also wrote books of their own as well. So look for those two authors and you'll be having a great treat. Mm. I recommend their graphic novels. Their graphic novels are brilliant. Sexuality and gender and queer. There's graphic novels on all three subjects and they're amazing. Yeah, they are amazing. I suppose, Silva, we've had you for our block of time now and we're so I'm just I'm I'm buzzed I'm kind of like yeah. I'm energized I'm I want to keep this keep it going and just keep the discussion going and hopefully we can bring it into the kind of wider world but it is it just goes to show you when you're in a space and you can discuss these things freely openly ideas are sparked kind of you've got memories you've got everything that's you just feel good. You just feel good in yourself as a queer person, authentically. And yeah, I think I just hit on some queer joy here. Yeah. <laughs> Yay. <laughs> Speaking to the truth. Yeah. I yeah. love it. Thank Amazing. you so much. Silver. Yeah, that's the yeah. power of connection, isn't it? Yes. That's how we yeah. get queer joy. Yes. Definitely. So thank you so much. This was so rich, so informative. And as we said, we'll put all of your links into the show notes. Where's the best place people can find you? Is there anything coming up that you'd like people to know about? Anything you want to plug, you plug away now. (laughs) (laughs) Well, there's always my website. I'm not very good at marketing, but my website is silverneves.co.uk. You'll just get all my information there. Uh, You can follow me on socials as well. I've got Twitter accounts and Instagram and Facebook. They're all kind of like my professional social media so i put lots of stuff on information that's to do with sex relationship queer and and occasionally a few silly things as well i see the instagram posts and they're really oh, all right. really good where <laughs> i think it was raining one day in the park and you had your umbrella and it was just oh, like yeah. you know, something it's raining but it's okay you know it'll rain but the clouds will clear and the sun will shine again maybe tomorrow I love that. <laughs> Thank you so much to everyone for joining us. Thank you so much to our special guest, Silva Nives, for joining us today for such an informative and necessary conversation. So thank you so much. Happy Pride, everyone. Happy Pride Month, wherever you are in the world. And yeah, let's never forget, Pride is protest. Stay safe, everyone. Look after each other. And bye-bye.